Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Brian Clegg, a well-known, highly respected, and extremely prolific science writer. Brian's latest book is entitled Big Data. The book is relatively short and is an easy and fun read. Most of us have heard the term big data, but many of us erroneously assume that it's just a lot of little data. It's considerably more than that, and Brian's book serves as a terrific introduction to a topic which has an ever-increasing impact on many aspects of our lives. Brian, welcome again to the show. It's great to be back. <laughs> Brian, um, how does the Netflix series House of Cards indicate some of the uses and potential of big data? I think Netflix has really led the big data revolution in entertainment. Uh, and and there's the obvious way, which is that instead of having to take a DVD off the shelf holding several gigabytes of data, I'm just streaming that over the Internet. So there's huge amounts of data. Perhaps 30 percent of, of the whole Internet traffic actually is going to Netflix and, and pushing um video across the internet. But more interestingly, really, is the way they've used data about their viewers to decide whether a series is going to work, which enabled them to invest millions into series like House of Cards or or The Crown, going straight into production where a traditional uh, producer of TV would have done a pilot and been very careful about it. Netflix had the data to make the decision uh, and to take some risks that an ordinary studio couldn't. You know, I'm just stunned by that 30% number. Percentages register with me, and it's just hard to believe that 30% of what's going on on the Internet is due to Netflix. Wow. (laughs) It it is a huge amount. But when you think about it, as I say, you know, you're talking several gigabytes of data for each DVD you might watch, and there are literally hundreds of millions of people signed up now um, across the world. So it really is a big hit, and it's one of the big transformational things in terms of the way the Internet's been used. Another one of the investments that I should have made but didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, why don't we start start by asking the question, what is data? Well, I'm sure as a mathematician, you'd certainly agree that it's sometimes numbers. In fact, it's often numbers, but really it's anything that can be recorded. So, you know, if you go back to ancient times and they were making marks on clay tablets, they're just as much data as are as the bits that are flowing through the Internet. It's just that these days we, we handle a whole lot more of it at a time. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you discussed something called the data pyramid. What is that? It's really just a way of, of, of looking at sort of levels of, of meaning and understanding of information and data. And, and at the bottom is the data, so the, these sets of numbers, of things that have been recorded, of, of, inf- of information that we can then make use of. So the next level up from data is information. That's basically saying uh, taking the data, collecting, collecting it, structuring it, and it, it tells us something about the world. So it goes from being just a set of numbers so to a useful piece of information that can tell us something. And then at the top of that pyramid, I'd say there's knowledge, which is where you take information and you interpret it and apply it to make use of it. So each of them is a sort of valuable step. Um, but really, we're heading towards that, that knowledge thing if we're going to re- make really good use of data. You know, I must admit that as a mathematician, I didn't really think of data so much as being a mathematical object, Um, although, of course, as you mentioned, it is numbers. What I always thought of it was as here's where it starts to be analyzed in large quantities with statistics. And how did statistics get its start? Well, the the term originally was talking about data about a state. The the stat in statistics is the same word as state, like like a country or a, a U.S. state. 
Um, but in the 17th century, uh, there was a, a guy in, in the UK called John Graunt, who was actually a button maker by trade, uh, but he had enough money to, to play around with uh, things that he found interesting. And he got hold of data about births and deaths in London and was trying to use them to make deductions about how the population was changing because they frankly didn't know an awful lot about it then. Um, so what he was doing is starting to take those numbers that existed and try to deduce other things from them. And that really pretty much led to things like the insurance business, which started in the coffee shops in London, uh, and forecasting the idea of using statistics to make predictions about the future. It was obviously one of the main reasons we now use statistical methods. Yeah, I always was impressed by the fact that I don't think uh, uh, people give enough credit to the insurance industry, because had it not mm -hmm. been for the insurance industry, probably the voyages of exploration of the 17th century that opened up a lot of the world might not have taken place because it essentially it introduced the idea of sharing risk among a large quantity of people. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was taking a whole new view on uh, you know, as you say, sharing that risk, taking understanding risk for that matter, because the, the concept of risk as being anything that you could analyze or treat mathematically really only came in then. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I must admit, um, the world changes under me. And as I read it or around me and as I was reading your book, that's one of the things that your book does is it makes you realize that this is something that is happening that is really changing the world. And how is big data starting to supplant statistics? Uh, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, it's pushing statistics totally out of the way. But the way we've tended to use statistics is to take sort of a model of reality or, or a sample of what's happened and use that to make predictions about the whole. And big data has the potential really to go beyond that. To, if we've got the right algorithms, the right rules or programs to deal with that data, it has the potential of explaining what's happening across the board. And that they've always been across the board kind of statistics, if you like, that when you've dealt with things like a, a census uh, or a general election or something like that. But usually what we're doing is taking a relatively small sample and trying to deduce things about a much larger population. And big data gives us a chance to do that a lot better. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I'm glad it's not supplanting statistics because <laughs> statistics has some really nice theorems in it. And as of yet, I haven't seen any great theorems come out of big data, but that might be in the future. <laughs> anyway, one of the things that having big data around is it does get you an opportunity to look for more patterns. And of course, mathematics is based on patterns but what are some of the ways that we can be deceived with regard to the perception of patterns? Well, uh, as you suggest, you know, we use patterns all the time, not just in things like statistics and mathematics, but to understand the world around us. Uh, if there weren't any patterns, we wouldn't be able to learn things. We couldn't do science because, you know, things would happen totally different tomorrow to the way they happened yesterday. Um, and we're so dependent on patterns that the trouble is we're kind of designed to find patterns even if they don't exist or we can extend them beyond the point where they're useful. So, you know, I'm fairly safe if, if I think, I don't know, that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. That's a good pattern. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly safe in thinking good that's going to happen. Yep. <laughs> but um, if I start seeing patterns in lottery results or the stock markets or in some cases in human behavior, I can imagine patterns that aren't really there. In, in a sense, that's what superstition is. It's kind of seeing patterns where they don't really exist. You know, it's funny. I think that's an excellent definition of what the causes of superstition are. And I'm not sure that I've ever heard that because, I, you know, most people ascribe it to other things. But, yes, it's the perception of, of patterns that do not exist. And the perception of patterns that do exist can sometimes be extremely difficult. And why is it so difficult to predict the weather? Uh, well, um, you know, there's been some pretty dire weather of late. And to be fair, there have been quite good predictions um, because weather forecasting was really arguably, I think, the first big data application. Uh, for, for decades now, weather centers have collected vast amounts of data to make their predictions. But traditionally, their real problem was that they're, they're dealing with a, a very complex system in the weather, We're, you know, mathematically chaotic. So very small changes um, 
at one point in time can make huge differences further down the line. And what that really means is weather forecasts are never going to be totally accurate. Uh, but I think it's fair to say they are much better than they were 20 or 30 years ago, thanks to big data. Uh, because instead of trying to just make a prediction, what they do is hundreds and hundreds of runs of the software with slightly different starting points and pull that together. They call it, I think, an ensemble um, of different outcomes, which is why you get this uh, prediction of, say, a 40% chance of rain. And what they really mean is 40% of the times they ran the simulation, there was going to be rain. Um, it's because they've got that old, all that data, they are getting significantly better than they used to be, but they're never going to be perfect. Well, when you talk about statistics um, you be and predicting uh, the stock market, it brings to mind uh, one of the things that happens occasionally in the stock market, namely crashes, which are mm -hmm. black swan events. And what are black swan events and what problems do they create? What, it, what a black swan is basically, about, it refers back to the fact that sort of, you know, um, up until uh, we got people from Europe going out to, say, Australia, the assumption was all swans were white. It was a perfectly reasonable assumption. Every swan anybody had ever seen in Europe was white. And then suddenly they discovered there were actually black swans. And it's really what happens if we fall into the assumption of, uh, you know, looking back on the past and thinking things will continue the way they always have. Because that often works quite well. But with these complex systems like the stock market, like life, frankly, it's very easy for there to suddenly be a huge change uh, that's totally un unexpected, impossible to predict. Um, and these are these black swan events. Um, it, it's just a, you know, a something coming totally out of the blue. Um, you know it's going to happen sometime, but we can't say when. Yeah, uh, living in Los Angeles, I'm thinking of earthquakes. <laughs> that's a good example, yeah. Okay, uh, there's an interesting acronym which was familiar to me but may not be to our uh, listeners, G-I-G-O. What does G-I-G-O mean and how is it relevant to statistical prediction? Yeah, I mean, I part of my background is in computing. It used to be quite a common phrase, certainly in the 70s. I think it's tended yeah, to go out of fashion. fashion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, basically it just means garbage in, garbage out. And the point is, it doesn't matter how good your systems and algorithms for analyzing data are. If the data you put is it, put in it into the system's wrong, then the result's going to be wrong too. Uh, and the problem is, we often have a tendency to use the data that's easy to collect rather than the data that's necessarily the best data to do the job. And so we always have to be careful when we're dealing with big data, when, you know, the understanding the data we're dealing with becomes fairly overwhelming, that we're not just throwing everything in that might actually harm the result rather than produce a good result. Yeah, well, that sort of seems to require something that you don't ordinarily see, the idea of judgment, but there can be algorithms which essentially uh, uh, sort of produce judgment by, uh, you know, by statistical or big data analysis where if you you know if you look at enough of this stuff and you start realizing what's happening you've got a system which is substituting analysis for judgment and i think that's a good thing to some extent it, it certainly can be i think it depends on on the system um and on the, the exposure it's had so i mean if you think of something like um self-driving cars uh they can do amazing things now uh however they are limited to what their data has exposed them to. And if they get to a bit of road that bears no resemblance to that, where a human being could apply judgment and say, OK, yeah, actually, I know what to do here, they are stuck. That's a beautiful example because I'm sure you read about this. There was an instance, I'm not sure whether it was this year or last year, I think it was last year, where somebody was in a self-driving car and the self-driving car was exposed to a truck that was coming ahead of it and it blocked so much of it that uh, the uh, analysis thought it was clear and a fatal crash occurred. I don't know whether or not you're familiar with that, but the it was one of those situations that the driver who could have overridden the system wasn't paying attention and uh, the result was tragic. Yeah, I think allegedly he was watching a film at the time. Yeah. Um, and, which just goes to show. Uh, you've, Back you know, to Netflix. <laughs> indeed. You can do great things with this, but 
you know, we, we have to be realistic. Uh, and there, it is operating in a different way to the way that we would non- normally apply judgment. And we really have to be aware of that. Yeah. Um, OK, let's go a little bit into uh, history and personalities. Um, who were Babbage and Hollerith and what did they contribute to the progression towards big data? Uh, they both really, uh, I guess, were aware of the overwhelming nature of the data, the, of the data they were being hit by. Uh, Charles Babbage uh, was a, uh, a Brit who um, a friend of his got him involved in producing astronomical tables, uh, which frankly it was an extremely boring bit of calculation to do, repeated calculations. And he was driven to think there must be a better way to do this. There must be some mechanical way to do this and looked at a way of, of producing mechanical computers. Uh, his ideas were quite good, but practically speaking, uh, the technology wasn't quite up to making it work at the time. Similarly, Herman Hollerith uh, in the US came up with a, a less sophisticated but more practical approach, I think it's fair to say, to the US census. Uh, because back, back then, it was getting to the stage where it took so long to process the results of the census, that the 10 years had gone past and they were getting into the next census before they'd finished processing the results of the previous one. And he had the idea of punching the data from the census onto cards. Uh, these punch cards originated actually as controlling looms uh, of silk weaving looms, but putting data onto cards, which he could then produce mechanical devices, which could sort them and collate them uh, and extract information from them. And really, both of these people were, you know, although it's historical, although they're not quite what we do anymore, there were steps along the way to manipulating big data. Um, One of the things that I found interesting was uh, your description of your shopping experiences and how they related to what marketers are now doing. And I think our audience would be interested. Yeah, I I think it's fair to say that shopping is one of the first areas where big data had an obvious impact on the uh, on the general public. And sometimes what they were trying to do, what the shops, the marketers were trying to do was to give the impression of knowing more about the customer um, and so you know giving the customer the feel of being in your friendly village shop when you go to the supermarket but equally uh, what you can see happening now is of course you know if you're doing such search, searching google say you're trying to find i don't know a, a good new coffee maker then suddenly all the advertising you see is about coffee makers um, because what the system's trying to do is match what you're looking for with the advertising. I think done, done well, it can make shopping a better experience, but done badly, it comes across as if sort of a, a, a very iffy big, big brother is looking over your shoulder and trying to push you in a certain way. Um, I think there is some of each, and I certainly know that big data has impacted comparison shopping because my wife spends a lot of time on it, and a lot of her friends do as well. And overall, you know, I think that it's made uh, – It certainly made shopping and uh, consumer transactions much more efficient, but it's also resulted in tremendous, um, a tremendous revolution to uh, the way the business business is conducted these days. And all this, you know, I feel sorry for all the small shops that are being pushed out of business, the mom and pop stores, because they can't compete anymore. It's very sad in some ways. I think that's right. And the other thing I think comparison sites illustrate very well is the balance you're always looking for with big data uh, because if it works well a uh, comparison site you know can list you say you're looking for insurance hundreds of different suppliers uh, exactly the criteria you want uh, so I'm thinking I'm getting benefit but the only thing you have to bear in mind is you don't actually know what algorithms are behind that and whether or not that comparison site is actually favoring particular uh, suppliers who've perhaps paid them more money to get uh, preferred. And so one of the big things these days about big data is starting to think about how transparent are the algorithms? Can we find out actually what's happening behind it uh, or are we being fooled by it? Um, that's a very interesting question. And uh, one of the things is, you know, when they when it comes up on the first page of Google, it's because mm. they've bribed Google best. Yeah, well, there's a mix, isn't there? I mean, certainly there is some advertising. I think it's also fair to say, um, you know, I think if you put Brian Clegg in Google, I come up first. Uh, I haven't bribed them. Uh, sometimes it, it works pretty well. Well, if you put in Jim Stein, I think what probably happens is that you get a uh, 
a doctor in uh, Los Angeles who separated two twins at a cost of a million dollars to the taxpayers. But <laughs> not me. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the things that's interesting is the way that big data has created different, you know, has I can't say created, but has brought about the evolution of software. And what are shop bots and what are their pros and cons? We've sort of been discussing this. Yeah, um, the term incidentally is something I've just made up. It's not, I don't think it's a general purpose term. Um, but in a big data market, if you think, think of something like Amazon's marketplace, if you're familiar with that, um, there are many, many thousands of sellers selling things through Amazon. And some of them are big suppliers in their own right. They make, may have thousands and thousands of products. Um, and they're always tweaking the prices of those products to try to get the best deal. Um, but what you got to be a little bit careful of is how that works, making sure that those bots that are doing the tweaking are written properly. Um, because what you sometimes see, for instance, is they get into a spiral uh, so that they will try to price themselves just under the nearest competitor who is also running some software, which then pushes it down again, and you end up with everything priced uh, at a center each or equally you can get them thinking there are no competitors, so I'll keep tweaking the price up. And you occasionally see products that are just ridiculously priced because of that. Uh, I, I found a, an old book on MS-DOS 6 uh, selling at uh, nearly a £1,000, so what's now $1,400, uh, which was totally meaningless. So I must admit, I then put a copy of it because I happen to have one up for a penny less. Uh, it hasn't sold yet. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> it's a lovely book. Okay. Well, if you invented the term shop bots, you talk about something called bot shoppers. What are, uh, are you responsible for that as well? Yeah, I'm afraid so. They're, they're just little terms I made up to sort of illustrate these things. Uh, and this is... Turning the other way around, these are algorithms that are doing the buying for you. So that, that was the seller having an algorithm. Uh, and what I'm talking about now is letting algorithms buy things for you. Now, of course, that's really common now on stock markets. I was going to uh, bring that up. Yeah. And they're great because they you know ensure the people who've got the best bot shoppers um, get the best price. But again, get the algorithms wrong, particularly if you're dealing with conditions where you're interacting with something else. And you can end up with something like the, the flash crash in That's 2010. exactly what I was about to bring up. Yeah, yeah. So you were talking over a trillion dollars wiped off U.S. stocks, basically because the algorithms were acting so quickly, uh, each one undercutting the, the next, that the humans involved didn't have time to pull the plug until that, you know, this thing, this disaster had happened. So getting that software written right, getting those algorithms written, written right is absolutely crucial. Well, we get into another area of what big data has done when we talk about privacy. Have we surrendered mm -hmm. our privacy? And if so, what have we gained by doing so? Well, I think as we already mentioned with um, the, the comparison shopping, it's a compromise. You know, I, I think most of us are prepared to give up some of our privacy in return for benefits. Uh, but we have to bear in mind that we do that, that what we're effectively doing is trusting a large corpora corporation to be sensible with that. And frankly, historically, they've not had a great reputation for doing the right thing. You know, if you think of the lengths the tobacco companies went to long after the health hazards of smoking were well known. Um, so it's really a matter of making sure that as much as possible, we've got protections in place, as I say, transparency available as much as possible to see what the algorithms are. Um, then, yes, I think we can get the benefits without too much of a hazard. Um, I think that you might find people who would uh, who would debate that who are not Luddites mm -hmm. um, sure. bec uh, because I mean, I have no problem whatsoever when I go into a store, if they track my buying, you know, if I the supermarket, if they track my buying patterns and discover that I like something. And so they give me some coupons that give me discounts on related stuff. That's not a problem. But yeah. there's an awful lot of data out there. You know, you uh, I don't have a Facebook account or uh, and I don't tweet specifically because um, I'm worried about how much of that becomes public and what you can do with it. And uh, 
maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little paranoid. Maybe I'm just a holdover from, you know, another generation. But it worries, uh, it worries me. I mean, and there's always a potential for abuse. And I think that um, the more data that's available about individuals' proclivities, the more, te- you know, the more there is for abuse, more potential oh, I think- for abuse. I think you're absolutely right. And um, if we're going to be sensible about it, as I say, I I think it's a fair trade as long as you're conscious of what you are giving. Um, So I do use Twitter and Facebook, but I use them in a way that I don't give away too much. I don't put personal data in. I don't put things like my birthday in. In fact, there are about 15 different versions of my birthdays out there online, none of them correct. (laughs) Um, Well, that's why I haven't sent you a birthday card, Brian. (laughs) Okay, getting on to one of the phenomena which most of us have encountered and have been frustrated by, why do airlines overbook? Well, I have to confess I have some direct personal experience of this, uh, and I can almost say I'm slightly to blame, uh, certainly as far as one airline is concerned, because I was involved in the modeling that led to that particular airline using it uh, in the modern way. Uh, And I I admit it it kind of seems crazy uh, unless you realize that not every passenger who buys a ticket actually turns up. And certainly when I was involved, I don't know how much it is the case now, uh, but it was very common for business travelers to buy, say, three tickets um, because they weren't quite sure when they were going to travel. They would travel on one of the tickets and get refunds on the other because a fully paid ticket, it was possible to get a refund after the event. And when the airlines you know, became aware of this and could examine the data and do something with it, they were able to reasonably well predict um, circumstances where, you know, the nine o'clock out of JFK to wherever is likely to have 10% seats that just aren't going to be used that have been sold. Uh, So you can start to build up a profile of where you're apparently selling seats, but they're not actually sold. But unfortunately, occasionally, of course, this goes wrong. And then it depends how good your customer service is, whether you turn it into something positive uh, you know, or as, or as a certain U.S. airline demonstrated earlier this year, a disaster. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, you bring up something that's, you know, that's very reasonable, uh, that the airlines are entitled to overbook if it helps their bottom line. And just so long as when one of us passengers gets uh, uh, gets kicked off a plane, um, that we're that we're compensated adequately for it. I don't think most people would object to that. In fact, I don't think they do. It's just in the rare instances where getting kicked off a plane is accompanied by uh, uh, by by police dragging you off the plane. Yeah, then it's not so good. Yeah, but uh, as you say, I mean that, that's basically getting the customer service wrong. The the concept I think makes sense. Okay, uh, big data exists um, on. A lot of different levels in large industries and also um, also in the way that it affects us personally in our daily life. And I just want to ask one more question about the large industries, because there's something that we're both a part of. How does big data affect the entertainment and publishing industries? And do you feel there's a limit to the potential range of applications for big data? Well, we've already mentioned Netflix, obviously, on the the TV side, uh, I think it's fair to say other industries are at different stages of being disrupted by big data. So music, you know, is reasonably well down the road with things like Spotify streaming music uh, and, of course, things like iTunes, people have been downloading music for a long time. Um, book publishing, I think, is a different matter. Um, they're frankly still struggling with the whole thing. I think publish, book publishing tends to be a bit behind uh, in terms of technology. Uh, and certainly there's still dispute there about, for instance, when you should release ebooks, whether you should price them um, much lower than the physical books and things like that. Um, but big data can do a lot, but I think it's also fair to say that there are limitations. Um, so, for instance, there was a program written uh, to predictive books are likely to have been on the New York Times bestseller list. So using big data to try to analyze books and see if they're going to be bestsellers. And it worked well to an extent in a kind of mechanical way. But frankly, looking at their list of the 100 most likely books to be bestsellers, I think I'd want to read two. 
Because I think the thing about publishing is there are lots of long tails, as they say in statistics. They, they, you know, the books that we like are very personal um, and not necessarily that easily applying algorithms to say, yes, these are going to be great for everybody because they won't. Uh, okay, let's switch over to how it affects us as individuals. And you might start out by describing your first interaction with Siri. Well, I, I suspect like many science fiction fans, I just couldn't resist um, saying open the pod bay doors, Hal, uh, from you know, the m- movie uh, 2001 to Siri. Uh, and it was quite interesting because the first time I did it, uh, she said something like, without your space helmet, Brian, you're going to find that rather breathtaking. Um, <laughs> But interestingly, I tried it quite recently, and she got quite snippy by this point and said, that's it. I'm reporting you to the Intelligent Agents Union for harassment. <laughs> uh, so clearly, you know, the people behind this, uh, they, they know about certain things people are going to ask um, and that they can build in some interesting stuff uh, for the responses. Well, I have to say that um, my first uh, experience with Siri was a little different. I was having a debate with a friend of mine as to when Isaac Newton was born. And so I asked Siri when Isaac Newton was born. And Siri responded by saying, Isaac Newton is not on your contact list. (laughs) (laughs) I think think it would probably be better now. Yeah, I think so, too. This was a while back. Um, How is big data affecting your ability to manage your house? Well, I have to confess, uh, using this book as an excuse, I I got hold of various home automation devices so I could do things like turn on the lights or play music or control the heating uh, by asking a little box sitting on the table. In in my case, it was Amazon's um, Echo device. And I think the big data part really is that like Siri, although it appears to be something local, so you're talking to that little box in the corner or you're talking to your phone, actually is a whole bunch of big data systems lying behind that. So when you say something to Siri or, or to uh, Alexa or on an Echo, what's actually happening is a lot of information is getting relayed to big servers. They're doing crunching. They're sending information back, uh, which is how they can make a relatively small and not that sophisticated bit of technology do what seems a very sophisticated thing. Yeah, it certainly, you know, it certainly seems that way. And uh, we have friends who just recently bought a house that had been recently constructed. And the Mm -hmm. house I live in was uh, was built in the 1990s. And our family hasn't seen a need to uh, uh, to get one of these systems. But this house was built with this system included as part of the house. And I think that's probably going to be more and more the wave of the future. Uh, I'm sure you're right. And, you know, in my experience from having used this stuff for about a year now, there are some things that frankly are just, you know, uh, they don't really do that much for you. But having said that, uh, you get used to it. You get used to controlling things that way. And as we can increasingly link things together, um, it, it is quite impressive what can be done now. Yeah, I, I certainly agree about that. And earlier we touched on uh, social media, and I think uh, social media would not exist were it not for big data. And how do you, you know, this is a huge question, so it's probably unfair of you, unfair <laughs> of me to ask for a short answer, but how have big data and social media affected society? Well, I suppose social media is kind of a, a big data version of having a circle of friends um, with all the pros and cons that that suggests. Um, I mean, we know from what's happened with recent elections uh, that, for instance, bring that up. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that that social media can have an influence on our beliefs because it kind of reinforces us in in a social bubble. Uh, So unlike hopefully a good, uh, say, news TV channel, uh, it's not feeding us relatively unbiased news. It's feeding us news that is what our friends um, believe in and chances are is just reinforcing anything that we actually think is the case. And there's also some research that's been done that suggests certainly in some cases social media has a negative effect on things like the ability to concentrate, um, particularly with with younger people who are using it an awful lot. Uh, But to be fair, it's also true that it can be beneficial. You know, uh, I I don't know about you, but as an author – I wouldn't have normally have much as a, of a support network. I, I work from home. Um, the people I work with, I rarely meet. 
but social media lets me connect with other authors and scientists in a way that I certainly find very beneficial. So again, it's this this trade off, this compromise. It's getting it right, and we're still learning. Yeah, I think it. I think that that's a very good thing to pay attention to. We're still learning. It's you know, it's practically any new uh, societal evolution. It takes us a while to adapt to it. And certainly we've got, you know, we've seen some of the bad, some of the good. But I'm enough of an optimist that I believe that eventually more good will come out of it than bad. I think I think you're right. But yeah. it is going to take some time. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we also t- talked about was the self-driving cars. And how does big data affect our driving habits? Well, I think what's interesting is in a way is that it's opening things up in a way that wasn't possible before because the auto industry has been using data for quite a long time. You know, any modern car has a computer built into it uh, that does diagnostics. And when you take it into the garage to be fixed, they plug it in uh, and the system starts telling them stuff. But we don't normally see that. And one way that is starting to open up is is that data being available so that, you know, you can have something on your phone that gives you diagnostics in your car uh, or that can sort of start your car in the morning, warming up or whatever. But I think even though we said, you know, there are negatives of self-driving cars, you've got to remember that driving is quite a dangerous business. I, I think about 1.25 million people a year are killed wild, worldwide on the road. Wow. Um, I mean, I know what it is in the United, you know, I know roughly what it is in the United States, but I didn't realize that worldwide, that's an incredible number. It is. So it is is something that it's well worth putting effort into fixing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, absolutely. I mean, I think that once they get the, you know, once they get the bugs ironed out, I mean, people, you know, uh, you look at the airline industry for comparison and it mm. is so much safer to fly now than it was 40 years ago in the 1970s. It's just night and day. And given enough time, uh, they're going to be doing the same thing for driving. They are. Uh, but there, again, I think it's something that we, we have to learn and manage because um, let's say, for instance, self-driving cars uh, reduce the number of deaths in one state. I don't know, from a thousand deaths to 10. That sounds brilliant. Except what you're then going to face up to is those 10 people were killed by self-driving cars. The thousand that were saved are just faceless numbers. And in the media, they won't carry the same weight. You know, so it's real people killed versus statistics. And we'd probably be okay with that because we're, we're, we're happy with statistics. But a lot of people really don't get statistical numbers and might feel they're more concerned about those 10 people than the hypothetical people that have been saved. Uh, I think that's a, uh, I think that's an, uh, a very sage observation. And I was thinking uh, of when you were talking about this, I was thinking of vaccines and autism. You look mm-hmm. at the, uh, you know, you look at, even though there is no proven vaccine autism connection and it's been debunked numerous times what happens is you have somebody showing up promoting this uh talking about things showing pictures and you forget all the tens of millions of people who've been saved from all these horrible diseases through vaccines that's right i think it's very good parallel so you know like that case i don't think it's going to be totally smooth as we go towards the self-driving cars uh, but I think genuinely it could result in, in a lot of people being uh, safe from being killed or injured. Yeah. Well, it also one of the things that's uh, interesting is that big data obviously has an effect on both medicine and the healthcare industry. And what are the positive and negative effects? Yeah. I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, just things like wearable technology that does health monitoring or the way that, say, uh, you know, a research uh, into the use of a drug could not just look at one small-scale study, but taking data across the world. Uh, big data can, can do a huge amount. Uh, but the balance what I think we're dealing with here is between you know, personal data and data that can be used very broadly. Uh, so if you can take anonymized medical data, so you've got the data, but it's totally removed from the people, that can usually do great things um 
it, but it's persuading people that it is safe. It's making sure that they you can demonstrate that it's safe. You're not giving away your medical data. It's not going to impact your health insurance or anything like that. Um, that has to be got over to get this to work. But the fact is big data can do huge things, I think, uh, because trials are always fairly limited. And big data allows us to pull lots of trials together uh, and get a much better idea of whether a drug's working, what's the best way to approach a particular disease. Yeah, this uh, this bears on something that I was having a discussion with somebody on in a totally different subject, the idea of meta-analysis and statistics, which is essentially pulling together a whole lot of studies to perform one sort of overriding study. And I think in general, you know, in general, big data certainly enables that to become much more of a possibility than it used to be. Well, that's right. I mean, we've seen it happen sometimes already. Um, So, for instance, you might have a procedure that's being done in individual hospitals. And at each hospital, it's not done enough to say whether or not it really is beneficial. But if you can pull that data across the whole country, even better across the world together, you can get a really good picture of whether or not it is gaining benefits. Because frankly, you know, historically, medicine, frankly, has not been very scientific. It's only relatively recent that science has become a major factor in medicine. You've only got to go back 100 years and they were still playing around with leeches and things. (laughs) And incidentally, leeches are not that bad, someone once told me. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's a bit of a generalization. Yeah, I I, I, I understand that. I understand that. But I mean, one of the things that just always impressed me is some of the uh, is that people tend to uh, denigrate all the wonderful things that science has brought to uh, 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 to the healthcare and healthcare industry. And I I guess maybe I uh, I I grew up I was part of the original uh, uh, polio vaccine trials. And I remember them, you know, I remember them vividly. And I remember what the world was like prior to polio. And every time I see people wanting to uh, wanting to limit uh, limit vaccines due to personal choice exemptions, which they have in the state of California, I'm just appalled. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. uh, um, uh, And also it affects, you know, one of the things that big data does, it affects our uh, political institutions. In particular, what effect does big data have on democracy? Well, I I think it's fair to say that, I mean, to date, not that much, but but it has the potential. uh, But we have to decide whether it's a good thing or not. Um, At the moment, we what we call democracies are usually representative democracies. So we elect a representative who's supposed to make decisions that reflect our wishes. And it's a pretty crude system, really. Um, In principle, big big data could give us real democracy so that we all make all the big decisions. Uh, But whether or not that's a good idea uh, is not totally clear. Uh, Certainly would only work effectively if you could ensure that the people making those decisions had access to fair information to support those decisions, which, which isn't easy to do. So in principle, big data can transform democracy, but it's not just a matter of saying, OK, we'll get everybody to vote on everything. Yeah, well, I remember a quote, I think, from Leo Zillard, who said something to the effect that I agree with the basic premise of democracy, that the vote of genius is the worth the vote of one idiot. But I'm a little appalled by the fact that the votes of two idiots outweigh the vote of one genius. And I think you run, you know, you sort of run into that with uh, uh, with a democracy. But either you trust democracy or you don't. And until proven otherwise, um, I'd like to I'd be willing to see what I'd be very interested in seeing what would happen if you did have a pure democracy in which everyone could have votes on whatever issue appealed to them. I wonder how how it would stack up against representative democracy that we have. I'm probably not going to be around long enough to find out. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned something called the smart meter dilemma, which I'd never heard of. Yeah, this is just a very small example, really, of having to see both sides of the equation when you're dealing with big data. Uh, In the UK, there's a big move uh, for people to have smart electricity meters, which are basically electricity meters that are connected to the Internet. Uh, and constantly feed to your supplier information about what you're doing. Um, Now, they're sold as a benefit to the consumer. 
because they will show you how much you're spending in money terms. So, you know, you, you spent uh, so many cents on your electricity today. Uh, when you turned your uh, heating on, it used that much more or whatever. But frankly, what you have to be aware of also is the industry is actually probably getting a lot more from them than you are. Because at the moment, with the old-fashioned meters, I don't know what it's like in the US, but here they have to send a guy around to actually look at your electricity meter in your house. Oh, that happens that, here too. Yeah, yep, and that, that's a big expense for them. Um, so they can do away with that. They can just check your meters whenever they want. But also they can devise really fancy tariffs that are so complex you know, if your electricity is on at three in the morning, then you'll save this much, but we'll charge you twice as much if it's 10 in the afternoon, uh, 10, in the, 10 in the morning or whatever, um, that the homeowner, frankly, can't understand it. And so it's really a matter of getting the balance with something like that. But in principle, you know, you could benefit, but you're not always going to be a little bit wary about who's selling you on those benefits and what, how much they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I always feel that somewhere, some every government employee has a book called Creative Tra- Taxation. That, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I often wanted to write it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that they're using to uh, uh, that they're using to find new and different ways to tax us. That's certainly happening in the U.S. I'm not sure whether or not it's happening in the U.K. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. um, one of the things also what I liked about your book is that for, is that it's a short read and it brings people like me up to date with a lot of things that are happening in the world that maybe we don't pay too much attention to because we're older than what is going on. But one of these was the idea of the gig economy. And perhaps you could explain the gig economy how the job market has evolved to it, if indeed it has, and how big data has helped to bring this about. I I suppose the the classic example of of the gig economy is Uber. Um, So the idea that instead of having a taxi company, uh, and when you went to get a taxi, you call the company up, uh, Uber is not a taxi company, at least that's what they say. They are, all they do is distribute your requirement for a taxi to people who are, if you like, freelance taxi drivers, people who do it whenever they want um, and can pick up on your wanting them. The term comes, you know, from musicians um, who would be paid for a gig or for that matter, freelance writers like me. And often it can work really well. I I like being self-employed because I have control. I can decide what I do. I can decide when I do it. The only problem with the gig economy is because it tends to be driven by big data because you've got systems in control almost that the people doing jobs for Uber, say, or, and there are plenty of other companies, I, I'm not particularly picking them out, um, get in a situation where although they're self-employed and so saving the company the costs of employment – it's very rigid. They can't actually dis- really decide what they do when because the system decides for them. Uh, and again, I keep coming back to this. It's about balance. So gig economy in principle isn't a bad thing, but it has to be properly managed. We can't just let it go like the Wild West. And here is a question which, as you say, it's about balance. And this particular question has been the subject of God knows how many science fiction and novels and thrillers can we use big data to predict when, where, and how crime will occur? Well, uh, it's certainly not going to be like Minority Report. That, you know, was, the, that the, was what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, the Philip K. Dick story that, that then was made into a movie. Because that's about actually predicting when a specific individual will commit a crime, and the idea is you turn up and you arrest them before they do it. It's not about that. But big data can help, uh, statistically speaking. So, you know, a police force only has so many resources. If you can get better information uh, about risk points, um, you can apply those resources more more effectively. This sort of idea, in, in some ways, it goes all the way back to John Snow in London um, in the 19th century, uh, who discovered, um, I think it was cholera outbreaks. Yeah, um, what's cholera? from a particular water pump um, using a map, using the data of where the outbreaks were happening and realizing that it was down to people getting their water from a particular pump. And in a sense, it's a little bit like that. It's using the data to say, where would you sensibly allocate the resources? 
the only danger there is, is making sure that the algorithms are working properly and you don't get too strong a kind of feedback loop where if you allocate more officers to one area, then they're going to spot more crimes. So you think there's more crimes, you allocate more officers, and it gets to the state where you, you can't move in that particular street without being arrested. <laughs> Uh, okay, why don't uh, uh, why don't we conclude? Well, I usually conclude by asking a couple of future questions about you, but because this is such an important topic and it's an evolving one, uh, I'd like to have your opinion on what you see as the good, the bad, and the ugly about big data and what its future is. Okay, that's, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> there's certainly no doubt that big data can do a huge amount for us, you know, whether we're talking about making us more dramatic, uh, democratic, improving healthcare, just making life more fun. You know, there are plenty of big data applications that do that. But the potential bad side is that unless organizations using it are made to be more transparent about the algorithms they use, because they tend to fall back on saying our algorithms are proprietary, we're not going to release them. We have a chance that those algorithms are actually going to be doing damage uh, and there's risk. So it needs managing. I think it, it's one of these things that it might need a, a light governmental involvement. You can't necessarily just let it go. Uh, so I, I guess that's the bad side, potentially, if you don't deal with it. Ugly, uh, well, I suppose an obvious one is the more you depend on big data, the more you so open yourself up to risks from hackers and electronic terrorists. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the friend uh, with a house with all the the, uh, the you know the smart house material built in, uh, the, there's a TV show called uh, um, uh, My Brain's Gone Blank. Uh, it's got robot in the title, Mr. Robot. Um, and in one of the episodes of that, a set of hackers basically take over a smart house and force the occupants out in order to take over the house because they basically hack it and make the life impossible for the people in there. Um, so you know, again, we have to be aware of these potential problems and design the systems appropriately. But on the, on the whole, I'm positive, I think, about the potential of big data with that transparency, with that accountability. Um, you know, almost anything beneficial has risks. Uh, I think a great example is fire. You know, without fire, civilization really wouldn't have got started, but it also has risks alongside it. It doesn't mean just because there are risks that we have to ignore it or so we don't want it, but we just have to be careful. Yeah, I always feel that uh, um, I'm always optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic. I guess I've lived in a very fortunate period of civilization. Um, uh, I was born during World War II, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, if you look at the way the world is now as opposed to the way the world is 75 years ago, I think it's a lot better. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. And um, anyway, Brian, do you have uh, uh, do you have any projects on the horizon that might interest uh, listeners? Yeah, I guess so. I've just literally just finished uh, another short book in the same series as the big data one on gravitational waves, which are, I think are absolutely fascinating. Sign me up. <laughs> and um, I'm currently working on a couple of books. One, one's about the physicist James Clark Maxwell and his demon, uh, which is, is just a, a great little bit of, of scientific history. Uh, and also, I think Maxwell's a really underrated scientist. Oh, Maxwell's one of my heroes. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And the, the, the other thing, I'm, I'm just starting on a project where I'm really excited about, which will be kind of quiz book, but you have to crack codes as you go to make your way, way through it. Oh, so, my wife is going to love this. <laughs> so because plus on the go. Uh, uh, there are there are do you know about escape houses yes yeah, oh, I do. Yeah. oh okay um, yeah. anyway how can our listeners get in touch with you well the best thing is to go to my website which is brian clegg or one word b-r-i-a-n-c-l-e-g-g dot net brian clegg dot net i'm also on twitter at brian clegg i mentioned twitter um and uh, but you can find that all on the website Brian, thank you so much, and uh, it was a delight as usual. Thanks, Jim.